And good morning, Gary. Good evening, Jonathan. We're back in our. We're both back at home. M- more to the point, we're back in our our home time slots. We're in our home time slots, which is very strange. Um, but it's this is the longest stretch this summer when I actually get to to be at home and catch up on things. So this this having it's, it's now it's beginning to feel like having one of these podcasts on a Friday evening for me is is like coming home. <laughs> um, I was at ReaderCon, as you know, last week. I do, yeah. Um, it's always one of my favorite conventions, and I always feel bad telling you about it because I know <laughs> it's very difficult for you to get there. Um, yes. But it, it, one of the things which is likable about it, and this is one of the things that uh, it's, is always an issue at various convention venues, uh, the, the relationship of the hotel and the neighborhood to the ability to have decent conversations with the people you want to have conversations with. Mm-hmm. Uh, because uh, a hotel in a downtown area that has lots of restaurants around it tends to disperse people to all the restaurants. And the advantage of this one hotel, it's a Marriott in Burlington, Massachusetts, which is like 20-some miles north of Boston, I believe, yeah. is that you really can't walk anywhere from it. Uh, there are restaurants within a short drive. Uh, but it has a wonderful, large, expansive pub in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. And can sit there pretty much and see everybody you want to see sooner or later because they have to go to the pub. And as a result, it's a very convivial kind of atmosphere where you're always running into people. You almost never fail to have at least a short conversation with everybody you want to, mm-hmm. as opposed to something like um, like a Worldcon, which we're both going to in a few weeks. Exactly. Which, which, which tend to be in these giant convention hotels where you're basically needing to take a taxi to get to your uh, one end of the hall from the other. Uh, so, so, yeah, I've got to admit. I mean, it's, it's probably not not a bad time to touch on the fact that we're only three or four weeks out for Worldcon. I, I've got such a mixed relationship with Worldcon, and it's for exactly the reason that you're touching on with Readercon. Now, obviously, as you say, because you, you have to try to be kind about it, but I've never been to Readercon, and I you know, may never get there. But Readercon sounds to me a lot like. Uh, world fantasy in the sense that it's usually in one contained venue you get to bump into everybody it's all social it's all nice Worldcon is exactly what you say it, it, it's this great big event across a whole bunch of um venues you, you, you round about now I, I at least i know you're far more mature and grown up i start to have my sort of crisis of confidence that I'm going to get to see anybody at all because of the various commitments they have and although I won't stumble across anybody and coming from overseas I have to work out what I'm going to do about a cell phone so I can contact anybody and all those kind of things and I was even uh, in touch with the convention hotel today for for Worldcon and it sounds like an enormous great barn as you say and it's the one that i always think about when you say when when i hear that kind of thing was the 2008 world con and i don't remember did you get to that one the one in denver yes i was there yeah that was right because i remember you and i spent some time talking to graham slate there and that was where all the staff were at the convention center had to get around on segways because the thing was so enormous right yeah so so that sort of thing but for for a convention the size of world con you have to have that sort of a venue the problem is that uh, you may have <clears throat> 50 good friends or people you haven't seen for a while that you uh, that you want to see, and in a reasonable size convention, by which I mean under a thousand, um, there's it's, it's almost inevitable that you'll have at least a few minutes to chat in the hallway. Mm-hmm. The simple geographical dispersion in a giant hotel like that makes it 
less likely, simply statistically, you're going to run into somebody on the escalator and have a nice chat. Yes. Um, one of the reasons I go to conventions, um, I go to, well, the main reason I go to conventions is, 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 is to meet friends. I'm, you know, say inane things on panels, which is fine. <laughs> but the main thing is to talk to people and, uh, and go out and, you know, and when you when you guys are there from Australia, we'll have our sea breezes. And yep. uh, when we're in the pub at uh, at ReaderCon, we tend to have um, Guinness or depth depth charges if Lucia Shepherd is there. Um, <laughs> but but by and large, um, the problem in is like you feel like you're a, 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 in, in a pinball machine. You're just bouncing from one place to another. Mm. Um, the second reason I want to go to cons, though. I enjoy going to cons because I do enjoy either meeting people I've never met before. Uh, even at my age, you end up being stunned by somebody you never expected to meet. At, mm -hmm. uh, at ReaderCon this year, it was Catherine McLean, one of the yep. people I read as a kid. Uh, I think she's 87 now. She received the Cord Wainer Smith Rediscovery Award. Very yep. deserved herself. And I thought, that's really stunning. Yep. Um, and last year, for the first time, I met Juno Diaz, who's... Mm -hmm. A stone fan, it turns out, uh, and th that that sort of unexpected thing happens. Uh, and my concern is, if you overplan your conventions to go see the friends you already know, where is the time going to be to encounter people that you didn't know you were going to want to spend time with? Yes, yeah, and I understand. Well, actually, I should point out, um, if we ever did anything organized like having show notes for this podcast, I'd point out that the Catherine McLean uh, presentation of the, for the, the Cordwainer Smith thing, and I think Chip Delaney interviewed her, I think? Chip Delaney interviewed her. That's all online at the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, Scott Edelman uh, videoed it, so you, you can sort of whip out onto YouTube and you know, Google Catherine McLean or search Google, and you'll, you'll find it, and so... Which, which is an interesting thing, and it did look like a really cool kind of good thing to, you know, just to have, so. But she's the first Cord Wainer Smith winner they've had there in many years, at least. Well, I guess they tend to present them to deceased writers, don't they? Well, uh, the idea is to present them to writers uh, who's... Who are still pre-deceased. Usually they're deceased, uh, and they've chosen some odd writers over the years. I think a couple of years ago it was Daniel Galui. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not even sure how to pronounce his name, G-A-L-O-U-Y-E, who had written some fascinating uh, novels and stories and, and was nearly forgotten. Yeah. Um, and there are not too many... Well, that's a good question. Uh, since I didn't know that Catherine McLean was still alive and very lively and very sharp and entertaining to talk to, and her husband was delightful to talk to as well, uh, it makes you wonder how many writers do we have out there who we just assumed were writers who had somehow disappeared or died that, that happened. Yeah. Um, and the Rediscovery Award, the the way uh, ReaderCon handles it, uh, even though they've chosen some odd candidates over the years, this was an excellent choice this year, mm -hmm. is a much better way to do that than the Nebulous. The, 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 award I, the award I least like, possibly, in all of science fiction's many, many awards, mm -hmm. is Nebula Calls. You know where I'm going with this. I do. The Writer Emeritus Award. Yes. Which is, which is, every time I see that name, I think of the, the, the Monty Python and the Holy Grail, I'm not dead yet. <laughs> uh, shut up. Uh, but they gave that one year when I was at the Nebula Banquet to, to Daniel Keyes. Now, Daniel Keyes had written one of the possibly two or three best-known stories in the history of science fiction. Yeah. Uh, Flowers for Algernon. Uh, and he had, he had not published 
any science fiction to speak of after that. Uh, but uh, but he'd been writing, had been writing psychological uh, uh, novels, had been writing thrillers, had had been mm-hmm. attending mystery conventions. He was anything but a retired author. Yeah. But in a sense, and, and in a sense, that's that, that's what the point of his uh, uh, speech was. I'm I'm not done yet. A few years uh, a few years before that, I'm fairly sure they gave it to Robert Sheckley. Yeah. Uh, who strikes me as being somebody utterly deserving uh, of an award, but not as an emeritus writer. Yes. Um, yeah. I don't know what an emeritus writer would look like. I've never actually known anybody other than these famous case histories of uh, guys like uh, Henry Roth, who wrote Call It Sleep back in 1935 or something and then wasn't heard from for 50 years. Uh, there are occasional writers who have decades-long writer's block, but I can't think of a single writer I, I know who would want to call himself or herself emeritus. Well, let me ask you this. Is this an academic's response to it, though? Because when I first heard of the, the um, Emeritus Award, my, my first feeling was, well, that seems fair, you know, it's well-intentioned and it seems nice and fairly harmless. Uh, and then there was a very strong reaction along the lines, you know, like, I've, I've not given up, I'm not done yet. And that's a fair yeah. enough thing, and I realize that rediscovery still allows you to do it. But tell me, is a, profer- a professor emeritus someone who's uh, already given the game away? Is that why people react to it that way? I think it's come to mean that. I mean, it's, it's come to mean that even in academia. Yeah. Um, professor Emeritus literally and originally meant that a person keeps the professorial rank from merit. Yeah. Uh, that's literally what it means. It doesn't necessarily sure. mean that you're retired, but it came to mean, came to mean retired. Okay. It came to mean uh, in, in most universities, Emeritus is not an automatic uh, title conferred on anybody who retires. It's not supposed to be that. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be an honorary title conferred on, conferred on somebody who almost always is retired, okay. but who, through the quality of their work, has earned to hold on to the title of professor. Yeah. Uh, so, but but by and large, in common usage, emeritus means retired, out to pasture, gone. You know. Okay. And, uh, but but I, I I do wonder how many people are out there like that. I mean, I don't. The writers I used to read, Catherine McLean would have been one of them. Um, I'm pretty sure that people like Mark Clifton, who I think won one of the uh, Rediscovery Awards, yep. uh, died probably many years ago. But I, ha- I hesitate even to say that because every once in a while you meet somebody who you thought had died. I met uh, <laughs> Angeline Walton oh, yeah. uh, years after I thought she must have died, and she was fine. Well, I, I, have, to admit, yeah, I have to admit, I, I was surprised to hear that Catherine McLean was still alive. I wasn't aware she was. Well, one of the things uh, that we were looking at, and this comes up again with the Life Achievement Award of World Fantasy, mm-hmm. which is always an interesting award, yep. and has to be given to a living writer. Um, and when when I was judging that, we were discovering a, a surprising number of living writers uh, who had not produced a lot in a long time. Alan Garner in, in the fantasy, yep. Susan Cooper. Uh, I believe as of last year, even Mary Renault. In her upper 90s at that point. Now, some of these people may very well be disabled. They may be in nursing homes. They may be, um, uh, you know, not remotely active. Mm. But um, but some of them, I'm sure, are. And yeah. the thing that struck me about Catherine McLean is that she may not choose to write anymore, but she had fascinating stories to tell. Yeah. Uh, she had fascinating memories, and I'm, I'm I'm always concerned that we're not getting to those people in time. Uh, there's, 
there's been a project uh, for years called the Science Fiction Oral History Archive. Sure. And there was uh, the the videographer Eric. Oh, what was the guy's name? Eric something who had been doing lots and lots and lots mm -hmm. of interviews with writers uh, until I think he ran out of funding for it. Yeah. Um, but by and large, even that is very span, very random, very spotty. There's no really consistent, regular way of getting at the memories of people like. Uh, Two other examples that come to mind are Bob Silverberg and uh, and, and Barry Malzberg. Oh well, both, both of them. Are yeah. Yes. And Rob and Bob at least writes extensively. Uh, yes. Uh, lots of essays, so he's keeping a good record of his uh, stuff. But, yeah. Uh, do we do we really know enough about? I'm just picking out somebody else in the Bay Area. Do we really know enough about Frank Robinson's career? And mm -hmm. his, he was an editor. He was all over the map. He was doing all sorts. I'm sure not. No. I'm sure He's not. Still, but, uh, Dick Lupoff is another one. Delightful, uh, very informative, very uh, knowledgeable, uh, with some you know, really excellent work. And yet, when we talk to these people, and this is something even even we've done at Locust, when we sometimes talk to them, we talk about talk to them about what they know about other writers or what yeah. they know about editorial policies, and not so much about their own processes. Yes. Well, it's interesting. It's interesting when. Uh, Writers are reluctant to talk about it. I mean, when we were talking about this, I was just thinking, this coming Worldcon, uh, will just uh, the week after Worldcon, Jack Vance turns 95. Yeah. And he continues to be uninterested in talking about his writing. You know, when I think we'd all love... I mean, he's actually been a little bit more um, available over the last few years and has been interviewed here and there. There's a very good or very interesting... Uh, podcast interview done with him and Fred Paul, who's oh, what ninety one and ninety two, just last year. Yeah, the Starship Sofa one. Um, and, and and I still my hats off to Starship Sofa for doing that because uh, that sort of thing requires a fair amount of coordination. You don't know how it's going to happen, and um, and Tony in, in that case had the good sense to let them talk, uh, which is one of the other things that sometimes uh, happens when interviewing writers. Is something that I think is a an acquired skill. Not simply having read their work and make, made up a list of questions can be very, very frustrating because you don't know where they want to go, and sometimes they want to go in completely unexpected directions. Hmm. Well, a good example, uh, which is marginal uh, to our genre, uh, but somebody who's written a fair amount of horror fiction is David Morrell. Yeah. Who taught at Iowa Writers Workshop, and I've. I was on a panel with him at the uh, Stoker Awards, and I've met him a couple of times because he's a friend of Peter Straub's. And he's been writing international thrillers uh, very successfully for the last few years. But essentially what people want to ask him about um, is Rambo. Yeah. They want to ask him about First Blood, about uh, what's Sly Stallone really like, and that sort of thing. And you can't imagine how bored he must be with that. So I, had into a, I got into a conversation with him once, and it turned out person he felt he learned, to, the, the two people he feels, I don't think he would contradict me on this, he feels he learned the most about writing from were Phil Class, mm -hmm. uh, Wood Ten, and Sterling Seliphant. Sterling Seliphant was a TV writer in the 19, late 1950s and early 1960s. Okay. He had a very series called Route 66. Yeah. And I guess David had apprenticed to him. Well, we got into a fascinating discussion about television writing. And something I'd never thought about, which is how the extent to which television writing, and to some extent movie writing, influences 
literary writers rather than the other way around. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have a whole generation now of people who've grown up watching Doctor Who. Yes. And there's no doubt in my mind that a large chunk of the shape of British science fiction has been influenced by Doctor Who, who over the last 40 years. Unquestionably. And also uh, comic books like was it, the, the, the Eagle and... Uh, those sorts of things, you know, those sort of annual kind of things, which I think never really made much impression in the United States, but would have had a, an enormous impression on young minds in, in, in the 60s and 70s, I guess, um, you know, as they grew up and became the, the, genera- you know, the Al Reynolds generation of science fiction writers, the Paul Cornell generation of science fiction writers. And you can discern, well, uh, in, in, in the States, you can certainly discern a generation of science fiction writers who probably are the distant or second, third or fourth generation descendants really of Bradbury and Matheson, but who's in, who encountered that kind of work initially on the Twilight Zone. Sure. And also, I mean, you know, the, 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 the descendants of Gene Roddenberry and crew as well, mm-hmm. who, you know, I mean, I think that's a, a difficult loop to sort of, or, or not to untangle, because obviously Roddenberry brought a lot in from, preceding science fiction to the space opera tale that he created for Star Trek, but then that in itself, and, and all of its appalling kind of follow-ons, well, not all of its follow-ons, um, it, you know, sort of then has influenced the science fiction that's written today in all sorts of ways, so. Well, and, and the thing I'm, I'm getting at is that a lot of uh, the younger writers, and by younger I guess I mean anybody under the age of 60 at this point, um, <laughs> are aware of the influence of the programs how aware are we of the actual people who wrote the programs? Now, I will agree with those who say that Roddenberry was somebody who stole ideas left and right. But Roddenberry was also somebody who would hire people like uh, like, like Sturgeon uh, mm. to write scripts for him, or who would uh, have Harlan Ellison write a script, or who would adapt a classic Frederick Brown yeah. story or yeah, into an episode. So, so there was something to be said for the for the creative mechanisms behind that. Rod Serling was, uh, even though I've been in debates where people think he was a major short story writer, I don't think he was. Mm. Every story he wrote in the field was wildly derivative, mostly of Bradbury. Mm. But what he did was he put together a very interesting group of writers, um, mostly Bradbury, uh, Beaumont, and Matheson. And today in the works of people like uh, Daryl Gregory, uh, you, you clearly see uh, you know, people who, who inherited that DNA in some way. Mm-hmm. I think it's very true. And I, I, you, you do see it around the place. But, yeah, interesting. <sighs> well, actually, it was interesting you, you mentioned Catherine McLean a, a few moments back. And, and, and for everybody out there, at this point, yes, this is the point where I would tap my good friend Gary on the shoulder and say we might be rambling, but we're going to try and stop rambling too much. Okay, we'll and I see that Catherine McLean is one of the authors who's going to be picked up as uh, part of the SF Gateway project that we were talking about recently. We were talking about that briefly with, uh, with John Clute, and it's a very exciting project. I was talking with Malcolm Edwards about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Malcolm was also at ReaderCon for a day. This is the other thing that's very nice about conventions that are inaccessible places. Uh, in- inaccessible, not inaccessible. Yeah. Uh, people... We'll stop through on the way somewhere else. It turned, you know, Amanda Palmer's parents live not far from where ReaderCon is, so Neil and Amanda popped by, popped by the last day in time for Neil to pick up a couple of awards. But Malcolm was very excited, and, and Malcolm Edwards is one of the editors who um, liked 
Tom Doherty in the States really, really, really loves this stuff and has mm -hmm. enormous respect for it. Um, so we do have a list of which I, I think the press release has gone out and it's public knowledge now. Yes. That, uh, the, the largest digital library of science fiction backlists, at least, is, is going to be rolled out over the next couple of years. Um, mm. Something like 5,000 titles planned by 2014. Um, and and of course, all this linked to the encyclopedia. The list of writers, though, is, is fascinating to me because uh, you always wonder who's holding out. <laughs> <It's really what laughs> you, want. you mean, why isn't the thing that you think should be there there? Exactly. And I haven't. I mean, there are writers who I think um, one of the this this is the argument in favor of of digital publication. I think there are a number of significant writers and a growing number every year in our field who are not likely to come back into print in any commercial sure. venue. Sure. And and yet, when you read about them, when you hear about them, uh, when you find some favorite writer of yours uh, adored their work, uh, mm -hmm. as, for example, we we know that Neil Gaiman was a huge R.A. Lafferty fan. Yes. So when you find that, then you've got a whole bunch of readers who want to know, okay, what, what can I get by that guy? Yes. And I'm looking at the list, I'm looking at people who are very important, very influential at the time, like Barrington Bailey. Yeah. Um, I don't know if any of that work is in print in book form right now at all. I would suggest you looking at the list, uh, which you can see on sfgateway.com, dear readers uh, or listeners. Um, you'll see a lot of people who are in that boat who either all of their work is out of print or they have a couple of key works in print, but not most of it. You know, so, for example, whether it would be um, James Blaylock, and you'll find out that maybe his most recent book's in print, but everything else is out, uh, out of print. Or Marion Zimmer Bradley, who you probably find that, I'm going to guess because I haven't looked, that mm. Mr. Vavilon is in print and will remain in print. Maybe one or two key dark over titles are in print, but all the rest are out of print. So this makes them available. Uh, Pat Cadigan's backlist. Um, John W. Right. Campbell's stuff, in fact, himself. I would imagine most of that's out of print other than the book that Nesford did a few years ago. Uh, to see to see Terry Carr's fiction made available. John Russell Fern made av available again. Um, to see, uh, you know, sort of the earlier backlist of Mary Gel Gentle. To see, I mean, I see Cecilia Holland is on the list. Now, I assume that's just for The Floating City. But I, you know, I don't know if it's her historical oh, titles oh, as well. Yeah. Damon Knight. I mean, Damon Knight's a fantastic writer, and uh, most of his, most of, if not all of his work is out of print. Catherine McLean, who we mentioned, um, and yeah, on through the list. And personally, I was delighted to see Keith Roberts, who was a, a favorite of mine, uh, show up on the list. Not just because it will make my life easier later in the year, but because it will make it, you know his work accessible, and you can turn around and say, well, if you wanted to try something other than Pavan, uh, then mm. here's your chance to see it. You know. Well, this is, this is, yeah, this is the drawback to, to print publishing, which I, I, I'm as enamored of as anyone. But, but two things tend to stay in print in print publishing: things that are essentially certifiable classics, like yeah. the Golan classics that they've been doing for the last. Yeah, which this comes from, yeah. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with classics staying in print; they usually deserve to stay in print. Or, secondarily, things that are just very, very popular will stay in print, whether they're yeah, they're, they're yeah. classics would be successful. What I'm fascinated by are not only the, the, the works of the writers you mentioned, but, but writers who themselves are, are more or less in eclipse. Edgar Pangborn is yep. somebody that any number of writers of a certain generation were just absolutely stunned by, by his novels. And yep. 
the name is probably not recognizable to many younger readers. Raymond F. Jones, who is probably better known today for this one movie based on one of his novels, mm. This Island Earth, yep. than he is for a long, interesting career. So the advantage of a, of a list like this, it seems to me, is that it, obviously the famous classic works are there, and obviously most of the best-selling works will be there. But to look at somebody's career, you have to look at stuff that, uh, that is not necessarily the most obvious stuff. Aldous sure. Budrick, one of the guys who was one of my mentors, is pretty widely remembered for uh, Rogue Moon. And I'd say that even most of the people who've read Rogue Moon couldn't name a single other A.J. Budrick's novel, let alone yeah. the short fiction. I would have to have a little bit of a think about it, I admit. Um, I'm assuming this gateway includes a lot of short fiction as well as novels. Do you know that? Uh, well, the one or two examples I've heard, is, you know, it involves picking everything up. I mean, the two examples that I know a little bit about, and I, I, I confess a little, uh, are Bob Silverberg, who I'd heard they basically picked up every single thing he's written in his career, eventually. At least certainly that's fiction. Now, for anybody who knows Bob Silverberg's bibliography, that's a heck of a lot. I mean, it's hundreds and hundreds of short stories. Whether they've been, I mean, yeah, I, I think they've got most, if not all of those. Uh, I'm under the impression, and I could be wrong, that um, they're picking everything up for others. I mean, there's another project which I can't talk about directly because it's still not uh, all, all settled down. But in that instance, I know that they're picking up novels and short stories and everything else. So I assume so. I really do. I would expect that, for instance, when they do Frank Herbert, it won't just it, it just won't be June. It'll be his short fiction collections, the other novels, that sort of thing. You know. Uh, yeah, same, same, same for Kate Wilhelm has written probably a couple of hundred short stories. I would imagine, yeah. I'm, I'm just not sure how these are going to be packaged. Uh, no, I guess we'll there's, there's no kill. inkling yet. Uh, and, and also how, how available they're going to be, because this may be another one of those happy-slash-unhappy examples where we get to find out that we're still in the first great era of the digital book. And... You know, exactly how much of the SF Gateway is going to be available to American readers is a question. That's the other question, because uh, international, there, there's still a lot of legal complications about what digital rights mean, international mm -hmm. digital rights, UK digital rights. Um, that's being sorted out. I'm sure Malcolm is doing a very professional and thorough mm. job on sorting all that out. Um, but I'm sure it's creating complications with, with several writers. Yes, Oh, I have no doubt at all. I've got no doubt at all. And I've also got no doubt they're trying to get world rights, but I, I think you may want... And also, well, even if they've got world rights, if they're selling from their British store, exactly how that will play out will be interesting to see. Yeah. Um, you know, so... Actually, it, M Malcolm's an interesting person to touch on for a second, because I, I, I'm on a, a mailing list, and they were talking about him the other, day, uh, the other day, just as being a publisher, and it's not really known that much as an editor, even though he's been a very active and important editor in the UK over the years. Because, I mean, my, oh, my, my understanding is, isn't he M. John Harrison's editor? Didn't he edit J.G. Ballard, as well as compi compiling the SF lists for the SF Masterworks and all that sort of stuff? Well, as I, as I say, he's somebody who really grew up in the field. He's been in it for decades. He's not... Um, he's, he's one of the few... Uh, I, well, I guess it's fair to say one of the few native editors, people who have fairly risen to fair prominence in the publishing industry who came out of science fiction originally, as opposed to editors who uh, sometimes increasingly, at least in, in New York, get assigned to handle yeah. science fiction 
fantasy or horror without really caring that much about it. Uh, yeah, yeah. You can usually tell uh, uh, there's a, a couple of books. Well, you can usually tell when a book is positioned as a bestseller and the editor is clearly somebody who's positioning it as a bestseller. And I don't know uh, who the editor of this particular book I'm thinking of, but the book I'm thinking of is Robo Apocalypse. Yeah, okay. Which is a huge bestseller. Yep. And I, it's clear to me that this, I can't remember who that was. Daniel Olson. I'm trying to look at the book right now. It's Daniel Olson, is, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but my point is that somebody who knows science fiction and can edit science fiction as science fiction and who knows uh, the market, uh, like Malcolm, are, are becoming, I think, increasingly rare. There, there are younger editors, certainly, who have uh, grown up with the field. Mm-hmm. And Tor has a lot of them, and a lot of them are good in New York. Um, yeah, this is a double-day book. And I don't think that anybody much cared whether science fiction people thought highly of this book when it came out. Yeah. Because it's being bought by Spielberg, it's going to be a big... And I've not read it, so I'm not... I have no basis on which to say anything untoward about the book. Yeah. Although people who have read it have said things untoward about it to me, so I think they may be right. Yep. Okay. So, so yeah, to get back to Malcolm, uh, he's uh, he's an example of kind of of a publisher moving into the main of a native a native editor and publisher native to science fiction mm-hmm. moving into the mainstream in the way that authors sometimes do. Yeah. And the fact that he was able to get the authority and the um, resources to do a project like this is something we probably owe him a debt of gratitude for, even if we haven't we won't be able to see it for a while yet. Well, we, we undeniably do. I mean, obviously, he may he moved into you know from editing into the the publishing end and has become a senior figure in English you know in British publishing, uh, and that's how he can oversee this. Uh, and obviously, this is where Darren Nash also comes into play at Golands yeah. as their you know the digital publisher. I mean, it was interesting when when they announced that they had a digital publisher. It was like okay, something is happening there, so it's going to be interesting to watch. And it has been. Let me take oh, another. Yeah, sorry, yeah. Golox has always had a, a much healthier history of recognizing fantastic literature than than most mainstream publishers in the States. I mean, even before the SF Masterworks, they did a masterpieces of fantastic literature or something years ago that had things like David Lindsay's A Voyage to Arcturus and E.H. Viziax Medusa and that sort of thing. Um, my understanding is that Victor Golox himself was interested in fantastic literature, but mm-hmm. I, that may be only anecdotal. Yeah. Let's 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 turn our attention briefly as, as we as we as we meander through this meandering installment of the Cood Street podcast uh, to to something a little bit more current. Um, here we are in July of 2011, Gary. What are you reading? Um, I you know perfectly well what I'm reading. I've been reading it for a long time now. <laughs> that doesn't sound like a plug for the book, Gary. Well, no, it's it's well, it's a long book. It's a 980-page novel by Neil Stevenson which no one knows how to pronounce the title of. And I was talking to Liza at Locus, and she said, I'm just, I'm just going to call Neil on it, because the title is R-E-A-M-D-E, yeah. which is very clear in the early pages of the novel is a typo for... Read me. Read, and read me is a computer virus. That's, yeah. that's not a spoiler at all. This is evident very early in the novel. But, and, it's, and, and it's interesting because Neil Stevenson, despite the heavy weight of ideas that you find in novels like Anathem, loves writing adventure fiction. Mm-hmm. And a good chunk of the Baroque trilogy, for example, yeah. was essentially a pirate South Seas adventure with Jack Shafto's and pure mm-hmm. imitation of 
Stevenson. Uh, so he's kind of writing in that mold, but it is 980 pages long. <laughs> yes, it is. I have to say, that's rather daunting. And part of me goes, I want to read this book. It sounds okay. But then I felt the same way about Anathem. I looked and I went, I want to read that book. And then I went, oh my God, that book's incredibly long. I don't think I can read that book. Well, this was my, my, my initial sense, and this is one of the problems with uh, working on a deadline. Yeah. Um, without you know, giving away anything that I'm going to say in the review. Oh, go on. Leak a little. Okay. First of all, it's, it's, as far as I can tell, there's virtually no science fiction in it. People are expecting that. It's, a, it's very largely an international thriller mm-hmm. with a multiple cast of characters, and it, it, it goes from Canada to China to the Philippines to, uh, you know, all over the world, with, yeah. and there are some gangsters in it, and there are uh, Islamic terrorists in it, and there are computer hackers in it. There is a massive multiplayer online game, which is kind of at the center of it, yeah. and a lot of it deals with something which I had to learn about by talking to my gaming friends, something called gold farming, oh, yes. which does go on, I guess. Young yeah. players in China and other countries will amass virtual gold and then sell it for real money to yes. To, to other players, and there's a there's a huge economy built around that. I think I so first I, th- I think I first heard of it in um, Cory Doctorow's story and his game. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I think you're right. And uh, there was some mention of it in uh, a Walter John Williams novel. Uh, this is not a game. Uh, yeah. So 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 I was vaguely aware of it, and there's a there's a sense of utter knowledgeability of detail down to the nth level that you can get in in William Gibson novels about certain kinds of things. I mean, William Gibson knows huge amounts about style and about uh, what what he calls cool hunting. Yeah. Uh, uh, what what Neil Stevenson is doing in this novel is, is giving that depth and, and intensity of focus on detail uh, to things that we would normally think of as, as uh, espionage fiction. Okay. So it's, it's, it's somewhere, uh, it's, it's more like a William Gibson novel than any Neil Stevenson novel I've read. But as, as I said, even in the Baroque trilogy, which isn't really a trilogy, but uh, it's, it's, it's a distributed series of seven or eight novels. <laughs> yeah. And some of those novels were just pure adventure novels. Some yes. of them were history of science novels, some of them were intellectual, uh, probing uh, philosophical fictions. Uh, but... This is pretty much one thing, and it's pretty much uh, adventure fiction. Okay. It's a so, lot of fun. And if I, again, I, I'm like you. If I look at a novel like this, and at the beginning of the summer, I'm thinking, this is going to be fun to read. I'm going to take it to the beach. I'm going to spend all summer reading it. Uh, I would say, I want to read that novel. Yeah. It's a little bit different when you're being told you have to read that novel by Tuesday. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I mean, th- this particular you know, month... And this is going into slightly, but not too much, uh, background stuff for Locus. You and Farron both have exactly the same problem this month. Uh, and Farron's got her column in already, by the way. Um, <laughs> but um, she's reviewed the new George Martin. You've reviewed the new. You're reviewing the new you know, Neil Stevenson. H- how do you cope with a thousand-page book in, in in a month? I mean, when hopefully we want you to be reviewing five or six titles in you know, in the month. Well, you hope it moves really, really fast, first of all, which this yeah. one does. Yeah. And then you carve out days. Normally, I will spend, uh, normally, I read at night. I'll spend 
two or three hours reading every night. And I, I, then I, I have a normal life. I go to movies, you know, I go visit my family and that sort of thing. When something like this comes up, you carve out several days and say, okay, I'm going to start reading in the morning. And I'm, not, I'm not a fast reader. Yeah. Um, I will admit to that. Or I will Nor am actually, I. So, so you just carve out twice as much time as you would normally assign to, to reading a book. And, uh, uh, and, uh, and as you are aware, I'm already past deadline on this one, but it'll be in soon. Yeah. What else are you looking at this month? Uh, I have a theory. Uh, here, here's my new theory. Uh, okay. The other, the other novel, which I um, have already written up, I, I've, I've written two reviews for this month. One is Lucy Sussex, who I hope gets discovered by Americans once and for all. But yeah. The other is, uh, which we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, is the Lobby Titter novel of Song, uh, which is a very, very different novel from one I've already reviewed, which is Kathleen Ann Goonan's uh, new novel, um, The Shared Dream, which is a sequel to her in War Times from a couple of years ago. And I was talking to somebody about dystopian fiction, about how dystopian fiction has become so popular among YA, yeah. and is the new angle on dystopian fiction. And I think I found it. I think what it is that happens in both the Lavi Titter novel and the Kathleen Guna novel, which mm. are alternate novels, yeah. in which the world that goes wrong and turns into dystopia is the one we live in. Mm-hmm. In other words, they're portraying, uh, they're, they're both portraying the classic Jack Williams and John Barr point. At some point, the world went right. Yeah. Uh, both of them are narrated from a world that went right, and both of them have these nightmarish visions of this world which is laden with economic disasters and environmental disasters and, uh, and, and meteorological disasters and terrorism and so forth and so on. And you realize that, okay, from the perspective of these novels, they're dystopian novels, but the dystopia is us. Yeah. Yes. Something we've done our own. Yeah. Interesting. And I, having seen two novels within the space of a month that essentially make that argument, I'm, I'm keeping an eye out for it now because a third related novel, which came out much earlier this year, a first novel by Will, Mac- Will McIntyre called Soft Apocalypse, yep. kind of made the same point that essentially we're creating dystopia. We don't have to imagine it. We certainly don't need nuclear war or, or environmental disaster or the collapse of oil. You don't even need to have the kind of uh, universal energy collapse that Paolo Bacigalupi talks about. All you need to do is to keep screwing up the economy the way we've done for the last 10 years, and we've got our own dystopia already made. Very much. Very much. <sighs> well, i got to tell you, I, believe it or not, have been reading as well. Oh, I know we, 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 we seldom come to the topic of the fact that I might be reading, do we? Because it's well, I assume, <laughs> how is it you're reading 300 short stories a week, and I am as impressed by that as you are by my reading a 1,000-page novel? Can I say I've been? You had to mention short stories, didn't you? I've been so bad and demotivated this year, Gary. But I am, I am actually reading bit by bit, and I am looking at many stories. So I mean, whilst it hasn't been three hundred, nonetheless, it's been a, a, a jolly good handful. And I am beginning to uh, sketch out the whole idea for this coming year's best because you know it's already July, and whilst for many people that's only halfway through the year, for us that's a long way through the year. And before you know it, I'll be assembling manuscripts and hand, handing that book off to, to the publisher. And I'm, I have to say, eager to do so because the publisher has told me the most recent book in that series, Volume 5, is the most successful one yet, which is very nice to know. But I've been reading Charlie Stross's latest novel, Rule 34. That sounds fascinating. You know, actually it is, particularly since 
I I climbed on board the sort of the Charlie Strauss train pretty early, and as sometimes happens with me in the international universe of kind of v- rambling interest or ranging interest, I, I then fall off. So um, having read the first handful of novels and through past Accelerando, I, I stopped reading some. I, I, I missed a couple of the science fiction novels, uh, even though I did read the you know the laundry novels he was doing. So I, I didn't read the previous book that's similar to Rule 34, which is, you know, near history or near future science fiction. And this is like very much, this is sort of literally set in contemporary Edinburgh, maybe 20 years in the future, if that. It's all about cutting edge technology, moving from, you know, sort of people who are basically terrorists and low lives interacting with police, how we're using communications technology. Uh, probably the greatest idiosyncrasy about the book and what the one that makes it stand out the most is it's all told from the second person. So it's all, you know, you walk into the bar and you look around and you see people, which is, is, is kind of a strange thing to do in a novel. And this is even stranger because it's multiple second person uh, stuff. So the, this chapter will be you walk in there and you do this and then the next person will be you know, you do that, but it, you're, it, it's somebody else's internal perspective. So it's quite an odd thing to get to get a hold of it, you know, if you're not immediately into it. But it's a really interesting book, and he remains a very interesting writer. I mean, the thing that I find curious is <clears throat> it's literally set in his neighborhood, and not many you know, writers do that. I mean, the closest I've come to that in recent years was when uh, Amelia Beamer, when she was doing uh, The Loving Dead, set it in Charles's house. Uh, but this is actually set literally on Charlie Strauss's street, if you went looking for it, I think. And it, it is. It's been a, it's been nice to read a, a contemporary science fiction novel. Because of all of the year's best reading I do, I quite often don't get the chance to. So I've enjoyed that. I know you always worry about that. Mm, very much. The one thing, here's a question I would have that I would think would be, I don't know, challenging for you or, uh, or, or, or Gardner or, you know, or, David and Catherine doing any year's best, that with all the short fiction out there, and you must have a sense that a lot of the very best science fiction comes in at novella length. But then you come across this long, fat novella of 60 or 70 pages, and realize that you have to read it because it may be a very important story, but you're, you're, you're not going to be reading five short stories during that period. Yeah. What do you do about the, the, the novellas are very important to our field. Novellas always have been. I mean, we've touched on it before in the podcast. I mean, it's an apocryphal thing where it's been said it's the perfect length for science fiction. Now, the more I think on it, the less entirely convinced I am. But I do think it's the ideal length for some stories. And some of those stories are science fiction stories. Um, how do I handle them? I mean, there, there are more and more novellas being published. I always hear that it's a bad you know, market out there for novellas, and yet somehow you, know, you turn around and you find that there are all sorts of places publishing small, standalone book editions of novellas, uh, places like PS Publishing, like Subterranean, like Twelfth Planet. They've all you know, put, put out these books and made them quite accessible. And then uh, when the major magazines, a lot of them went to fewer, longer issue, issues, you know, like, say, fantasy and science fiction, that also opened up the market for for more novellas, and that's very much been the case. It can be a challenge at times to get on top of them, uh, but in some ways it also, I hate to say it, makes your life easier, and it's not something that you know is talked about much, but if you have a 30,000 or 40,000 word story taking up a chunk of a, nove- of a double issue of a magazine or a chunk of an anthology, 
Um, you still only have to read the first three, four, five pages of it to know that it's good or not, or that it's interesting or not. And that's a large chunk of the, the, the rest of the book you get to overlook. The real challenge isn't the reading challenge, I don't think. It's the editing challenge. And the editing challenge is twofold. First of all, in a good year, you're going to get half a dozen novellas at least that are worth putting into a year's best. And you cannot do that. You can only put right. several of them in. Uh, and that's frustrating. I mean, you, normally I would put two, you know, normally my, my, my personal formula, if you like, is one science fiction and one fantasy novella go in. And that's it. It's like this year, probably, though not certainly, but probably the one fantasy related novella will be Peter Straubspun from Conjunctions. Uh, and so far, I mean, several science fiction novellas I've been impressed with, but Paul McCauley had a very nice one in uh, Asimov's earlier this year. So there's a, f a few, but... And then it's like, where do they go in the book? I mean, I, I tend to feel like, rhythm-wise, I want the novellas at the end of a book. Uh, though some people often, you know, like... A, uh, I listened to a long discussion of my anthology, Eclipse, which talked about James Patrick Kelly's novelette, not novella, that yeah. is in Eclipse 4. And querying why it was at the end of the end of the book, and one of them is is just the rhythm of it all. I think when you start at the the beginning of a book, you're looking for variety, you're looking for comfort, you're looking for confirmation. You're in the book you expect to be in, and all this sort of stuff. By the time you get to the end of the book, you're I'd like to think if you're reading it sequentially as well, you're more engaged with the book, you're more committed to the book, and by the time you hit a long novelly feeling kind of piece, and novellas are novelly feeling. Uh, yeah. you're happier to run into it and work through it kind of thing. So, yeah. Do you get a sense as to how people read anthologies? Because <clears throat> I know I, I do it. I, it's varying for me. When I when I was simply buying anthologies to read them, by the year's best, and I would see, I don't know, I'd see a Karen Joy Fowler story. And I'd go read that first because, hey, here's a Karen Joy sure. Fowler story. And then I'd go back and I'd, I'd read the ones I want to read. I'd cherry pick the anthology. And then, and then I would go back to the beginning. Now, I, I do that less now that I know I'm going to have to read everything in the anthology. Well, but you can yeah. sense that everybody reads every story in every one of your anthologies? Oh, I don't think they do. I think that's very unusual. I think that most readers who buy anthologies cherry-pick them. I think that um, <clears throat> it depends how they feel about the stories that they have cherry-picked as well, how committed they are to continuing so you're right, you know, sort of, you pick up an anthology and you're a Karen jo Joy Fowler fan, so you read that, and it's, if it's a great Karen Joy Fowler story, well, you're, you know, you'll cherry-pick through your next level of writer, um, and then so on down, it's like, little, like, levels through the book of, well, I now like, I also like Lucia Shepard and J Jeffrey Ford about, the, you know, the same mm -hmm. amounts, so I'll read their stories, and then I've not really read a lot of, say, Le Lavi Tidhar and Sandra MacDonald, but I liked all the rest of the book, so I'll keep going. However, if it happens, that doesn't happen very often, but let's say that your favorite writer is Karen Fowler and she doesn't have a great story. She's just got an okay story in the book. That's going to disincentivize you to read the rest of the book, actually. Uh, and I mean, from, from a personal perspective as well, as well, the only anthologies I tend to read cover to cover in edited order are the ones that I'm reading to review, I think. Uh, now, as a as a year's best editor reading, it would be functionally sim simpler to read a book cover to cover, but it's essential for my sanity to preserve 
reading things that I like. So I do immediately cherry pick the stuff that I'm most interested in. Um, though I tend to maybe do it slightly atypically in the sense that I start, I go first to say Karen Joy Fowler, and then I go, you know, once I've gone through those top two or three that I most want, then I go to the people I've never heard of. I do then, too. I do too. I, that's an interesting point because uh, the other thing which is exciting about an anthology, and I can remember this, and it happens to me usually when I'm reading Years Best, or occasionally mm -hmm. I'll be reading something like Eclipse, I distinctly remember reading my first Daryl Gregory story, which I'm pretty sure was probably second person present tense. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm thinking, this was dynamite. This is a terrific writer that I don't know anything about, and he gets added to the list of people like, okay, I'm going to look at the next story from him. Yeah. Um, and where there are other writers who uh, write a perfectly fine story, yeah. But it, it, it's just, there's nothing wrong with it, but it doesn't make me passionate to wait to see what their next story is. With Gregory, yeah. I just did not wait to see his next story. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, and, and that's it as well. I mean, when you come across somebody, it's like this year, there were two writers that uh, I've just been, you know, I first encountered really, even though I think they might have written earlier. Uh, the first was a chap by the name of Ken Liu, who's, who's writing for FNSF and for some of John Adams' publications. And he's really worth looking out for. He's got a terrific story in FNSF this year. And there's also An Awamayala, who I read in, I think it was Lightspeed. And she looks like she's just going to be a terrific science fiction writer. So coming across those people really does make it more interesting and more rewarding and keeps you motivated to do it. Um, there, there is... A burnout that ha happens that you that you do fight, you know, where you, you you know it's like when you pick up a set of anthologies, say as as I do, and probably not many other readers do. You probably wouldn't pick up a whole batch of them at once and sit down with sort of six or eight anthologies on the table beside you and begin to read through them. But when you see um, the, the the standard names, I guess is a one way of putting it who appear in lots of, you know, prolific short story writers who maybe are always competent and always worth reading but aren't maybe likely to produce really A-grade stories, you can get a little bit burnt out on them and start thinking about skipping their work, you know, so. Yeah, I think that's one of the issues that comes up. Uh, when, uh, well, the reason this interests me is because I suspect um, that a lot of readers even now begin edging their way into science fiction by reading anthologies, not knowing much of anything. Okay. Uh, I, I certainly started that way. I mean, I, when I was reading, I joined, I mean, I'd, I'd read novels and I'd read part of it, I could pick up a drugstore. At some point, I joined the Book of the Month Club and yep. they were offering year's best anthologies and so forth. Mm -hmm. And I'd just start at the beginning and if a story didn't interest me in the first couple of paragraphs, I'd go on to the next one and eventually I'd find one that would hook me. Yep. And essentially, you're learning how to read the genre uh, by doing that. And uh, I know people who teach science fiction courses sometimes do what I've done and use one of the year's best anthologies. I actually used one of yours uh, once. And, uh, and it's fascinating to watch how students react to that sort of thing. Of course, there are yeah. signs of it. Yeah. But sometimes you get a sense that if I had started the student, uh, here's a good example, uh, something that polarizes students very much, uh, was uh, the Ted, Ted Chang story, Exhalation, which I taught a couple of years ago. Yeah either thought it was possibly the best single piece of fiction they had ever read in their lives. Wow. Or could not make heads or tails of it. <laughs> There's nobody in between. Yeah. Well, yes. I can understand. I can sort of understand that. Uh, the one that I keep thinking about, and I've mentioned it here before, is Glory by Greg Egan. I find that's a real litmus test story in this world. 
You know, mm-hmm. people love it or they hate it. They can't get through the um, the, the entrance exam that sits at the beginning of it. They find, yeah. I mean, which I find exhilarating and fascinating, and I I love it. And a lot of other people find dense and pointless and gets in the way of the story and should have been cut. So, people, some people reacted that way to Hanu Ryunyemi's novel, The Quantum Thief, because there's just this density, this storm of invention, yeah. and then it detective book. I saw a comment online that I found curious about that book, actually. Uh, someone said that they didn't think it had, had that enthusiastic a reception in the UK. And that really wasn't my... Uh, oh, sorry, in the US. And that really wasn't my impression. I just fig- I figured it'd come out as one of the, the best first novels of last year that was sort of rolling into the US bit by bit. Uh, you know, what, what impression do you have about how it's being received? Um, the people I've talked to who, who read it uh, I actually weren't even bothered by that uh, very inventive. You know, it's a lot of terms, a lot of concepts thrown at you with no context at all, and you just find your way in the world. And pretty soon the plot kicks in. Yeah. Most of the people I've talked to weren't even bothered by that. They didn't yeah. even have the, the, the glory effect on it. They thought it was just a lot of fun and very inventive, and somebody who they wanted to see more of. And his next novel is one of the ones I'm looking forward to as well. But yeah, I thought it was very well received. Well, and we should get the sequel in the not-too-distant future as well, which will be a good thing. Yes, that'll be uh, exciting. That's the kind of thing we're always looking for, is somebody who uh, just has a sense of discovery that, uh, you know, I haven't heard a voice quite like this before. Yeah. And sometimes sometimes that'll happen with one or two stories, and then the rest of the stories become okay. Um, Mm. uh, I'm not going to mention names here, but... No, no. There's some people who I was just really stunned by when I read the first two or three stories, and then I read the next two or three, and I thought, well, maybe they're selling stories that they wrote earlier. <laughs> uh, writing really great stories is a tricky business, Gary. Well, uh, there are writers. There are some writers who who don't strike me as being utterly gripping writers who've written stories that I think are exactly right for what they are. Um, I've always. Here's an example. I've always admired Werner Vinge, and I, to be honest, I've never loved his work. Okay. Um, except for a few things. Yeah. Um, and, and one of them, which struck me as being, and we were talking earlier about novellas, almost a perfect conception for a novella-length story was the, the Cookie Monster. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because it certainly needed that length to set up yes. the situation. But the, I, the central idea wouldn't have sustained the novel. No. Uh, and, and I thought, okay, this is somebody who can write... Uh, uh, an almost seamless narrative arc, and the story for me worked utterly. His novels never seemed that seamless to me. Yeah, no, no, I think not. Uh, I mean, I, I will say I enjoyed the Fire Upon the Deep, tri- you, know, you know, duet, uh, and I understand there's a third one coming out any minute now, or just out, The Children of the Sky. But yeah, I don't know. I, I, I've liked the I liked a couple of novels, but I, I've had the same experience. So, you know what, Gary? We're out of time again? We've rambled for long enough, and we should let these people get on with their days. Go read, go read anthologies, everybody, and tell us how you read them. And next next week, we will be focused and on song, and we're looking to do exciting things at Worldcon to entertain and interest and engage you even more, dear readers. So hopefully, or listeners, so hopefully all will be, all will be well here all at the right. Coach Street Podcast. Okay. We'll talk next week. We will indeed. Take good care, Gary. Bye.